Every day I have reminders that I can do nothing without Jesus. And coming up here every Sunday is one of my reminders that I can do nothing. I can't preach, I can't live, I can't do anything without Jesus. And we need these reminders in our lives. We're going to read Matthew chapter 8. If you can believe it, we're back in Matthew. We have returned. We're going to read Matthew 8 verses 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with us. And we thank you that you're going to speak to us and that you have already spoken in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would Show us what what you have for us through this passage for this week in our life. And we thank you and praise you, Lord, that we can trust you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was telling first service that I never ask you to please sit down because I figure that's a given. Psalm 97 and verse 1 says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. But looking around, we could easily conclude that chaos reigns. Throughout history, sin and its effects on mankind have wreaked havoc. And it started early. Murder in the first family. Much evil, lies, idolatry, treason followed. As time marched on, holocausts and Hitlers arose, atrocities and injustices abounding, embezzlements, murders, adulteries, revenge, wars, crimes, disasters, 9-11s, and other threats of terror. You look at all that, and the outlook is not very promising. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that in the last days... Difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Evil men and imposters, we are told, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Seems so chaotic, doesn't it? But there is reason for hope. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says that where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. God orders chaos. God orders chaos. He is not the instigator of chaos. He is not the author of confusion. But sometimes he allows it to bring about his good and perfect purposes and plans. God does not cause chaos. He brings order in chaos. He is a God of order in the midst of the chaos caused by sin. And today we're seeing a story of Jesus freeing two men who were demon-possessed. And in the process, 2,000 pigs running over a cliff. They did not do a swan dive. What a chaotic scene that must have been. Demon-possessed men, pigs running over cliffs and dying in the waters below. It shows us something. It shows us Jesus' authority over the chaos in mankind. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew recorded that in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And now for this whole chapter 8, Matthew has been showing that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospel writers, all have this story following the miracle on the sea when Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. And these two stories belong together, the calming of the storm and the sending out of the demons out of these two men. They're examples of Jesus' authority over nature, the chaos in nature, and the chaos in mankind. Now, there are two back-to-back verses in Psalm 89 that summarize these two back-to-back miracles in the Gospels. Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 89, verse 9, says this, You rule the raging of the sea. When When its waves rise, you still them. There's the calming of the storm. And the last part of verse 10 says, You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. There's the, there's the sending away of the demoniacs, the demons going out of the men. Now, there are three movements in this passage of Scripture that we just read that are highlighted by one word. I want to point this out before we get it any further. They're highlighted by the word behold, which is like saying, Look, attention. Something's happening. Something big is happening. The first behold is in verse 29. Behold, they cried out. The legion of demons cried out. Why are you messing with us, Jesus? What are you you doing? Why are you meddling with us before the time? The second behold, verse 32. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. The third behold is in verse 34. Behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And this would have been good except for their unbelief. This passage ends with a thud. 
Jesus leaving them up to their own devices. They basically said to Jesus, you need to hit the road. Why don't you just leave town? Let's look at the setting, first of all. Some of the details in verse 28. You come to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. There has historically been some confusion as to the location. You may have different words in your Bible, a different place. Uh, Matthew has Gadarenes. I know that King James has the uh, Gerasenes, I believe. Mark and Luke have Gerasenes or Gergesenes. So which one is it? The Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, or the Gergesenes? I'm going to try to uh, attempt to make some sense out of this very quickly because it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it's important. It was in a district controlled by the town of Gadara near the village of Gergesa, which is about midpoint on the, uh, the lakes, the Sea of Galilee's eastern shore. Josephus said that Gadara had territory and villages on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which probably included the little village of Gergesa. Back in those days, Gadarene coins had often had pictures of ships on them, and Gadara was not near the lake, not near the sea here. Sort of like when I go back to Tennessee and I visit my in-laws and I meet someone in town, they say, where are you from? I say, well, I'm from California. Well, where in California? I often say, I love to say, the greater Los Angeles area. My family looks at me, what are you talking about? We live in Irvine, in Orange County. I said, you're 3,000 miles away. I think we're close enough. Okay? I live in the greater Los Angeles area. Now, this was Gentile territory, the area of the Gadarenes, to Jews, unclean. Unclean people, unclean pigs. It was in the area of the Decapolis, which literally means 10 cities. The region east of Galilee, running from Gergesa in the north to Philadelphia in the south. Not PA, but in the Holy Land, Philadelphia. There were people in these areas of the Decapolis who followed Jesus. You see it in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, these ten cities and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they were committed full-on disciples. It most likely refers to those who followed Jesus around in his ministry and then were loosely considered his disciples. There was a nearby hillside where ancient tombs were, small caves, and this is where the men lived. No one wanted to come nearby these men. They were so violent. But was it one man or two? Mark and Luke have one. Matthew has two. The best explanation I have come across, there's a couple of them. One is that Matthew had independent knowledge of a second man. The other idea is that the other gospel writers only mentioned one who stood out. Sometimes one person is more prominent in a story. It's not uncommon for gospel writers to mention only that one. It's kind of like if I go to a wedding with my wife, Angela, and I'm talking with friends, and she's talking with friends, and afterwards I say, did you see Mark? I saw Mark at at the wedding. We haven't seen him for years. But it was both Mark and his wife who were present. The men were demon-possessed. 
They were dangerous. Mark and Luke more fully describe their violence. Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Speaking of the one man that he is pointing out, he says he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. See, they had tried, didn't work. Not even with a chain. Verse 4 says he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. These demons who inhabited him hated him and led him to hurt himself and other people. Luke tells us that he was naked. Luke 8, verse 27, For a long time he had worn no clothes, a man not in his right mind. Let's look at the actual events of the story. Starting at verse 29. What we see here is that the demons, as James chapter 2 and verse 19 say, the demons believe and shudder. As they were crossing the lake, the, the, the disciples were mulling over a question, if you would remember. They'd been in the boat with Jesus. A great storm had arose. Jesus calmed the storm. And then they said, what kind of man is this? Who is this Jesus that he can command even the wind and the waves and they obey him? So as they're crossing over the lake, the disciples are mulling over this question. Who is this man? And when they got to the other side, the demons come out and tell them. Verse 29, they cry out, What have you to do with us? A very self-centered question, by the way. What do you have to do with us? They cry out. They literally scream at Jesus. They're not just speaking. They're screaming out. These demons. What do demons have to do with Jesus? They identify themselves as we. In Mark and Luke, they are identified as legion. Many. There's strength in their numbers. Nothing to Jesus. They approach Jesus only to insult him. It's more an assault than a request. They use his name, Son of God, as a defensive put-off, a verbal shield to defend themselves against this power that they cannot stand before. D.A. Carson said it this way, They knew who Jesus was, but remained demons. To know who Jesus is and hate him is demonic. The question the demonics hurled at Jesus is hateful and tinged with fear. Fear. The demons believe and shudder. They scream, they don't speak, revealing their imbalance. Here we see something very interesting. Jesus is recognized by the demons for his power and for who he is. They acknowledge his character, his power, and his authority. They believe more truth about Jesus than many people who say they belong to Jesus. Let me tell you what they believed about Jesus. First of all, they believe that he is God. 
They believed in the deity of Christ. A lot of people who say they follow Jesus don't believe that Jesus is God. They must be reading a different Bible than we are. Jesus is God, God the Son, who eternally exists with the Father and the Spirit. Fully and equally God in relationship to one another, eternally. They believe that Jesus is God. What do we have to do with you, Son of God? They also believe that as God, Jesus is judge. Judge. That there will come a day of reckoning. Have you come to torment us before the time, they ask. There will be a time for demonic hosts to be tortured and rejected forever, Jude 6 tells us. Revelation 20 and verse 10 tells us. They recognize Jesus as the one who will act as judge at the appointed time. Confirms the fullest meaning of the title Son of God. They also believe that as God, Jesus is sovereign. That he has authority over all. What they do, it's very telling, they presuppose Jesus' pre-existence by the use of the word here. Why have you come here during this time, here to earth, right now, in this place? Are you coming to torment us before you, you are supposed to? They mean here and now on earth, where they had been given some freedom for a time to trouble men before the end would come. James 2.19 says the demons believe and they shudder. They literally tremble, best translated, shudder. But have you ever been so scared that cold chills ran up your spine and your hair stood on end without product in it? This is the thought here that when the demons think about God and the judgment awaiting them due to their sin, they shudder from fear. And I'll tell you, if people could see what awaits them because of their sin and rejection of Christ, they would too. Jerome put it this way. In the presence of the Savior, demons are tormented. Verse 30, we come to an innocent herd of 2,000 pigs just minding their own business, doing what they do. Whatever it is they do. Just off at a distance, doing their thing. Mark numbers them at 2,000. And they were some distance away. And here in verse 31, we see the demons negotiating with God, or trying to. The demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. I've always been puzzled by by this story. Always wondered about it. Why why would Jesus do that? Why would he let them go there? It's a tough question, but there's another question we need to answer before we even look at that. Why would they even ask? Why would the demons have pled with Jesus to let them go into the pigs? Two possible reasons I'll give you. First, their hatred of God's creation. Their hatred of God's creatures. 
Some people have facetiously tried to say that this story and this happened and they use it as evangelical bait for, for first century Hebrews that they would have loved a savior who hated pigs by letting them die. It's not true. But could it be that they asked Jesus to let them go into the pigs because they hated God's creation? And a second reason, a desire to stir up animosity towards Jesus. I tell you, that that Jesus allowed it shows his power and authority and sovereignty. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see evil spirits being cast out, sometimes expressing their rage by visible acts of violence or mischief. But what we see happen, verse 32, is that Jesus sets the prisoners free. The Lord sets the prisoners free. That's what Jesus does. And did you notice? Jesus says one word in this whole passage. One word. Go. That's all it was needed. And by the way, it was not a suggestion. It was a command. Go. Luke 8, 29 says that he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out. He sent the demons away. This legion of demons, this, this league of demons out of these two men. The big question for us then is, why would Jesus allow this to happen? To grant the request, let them destroy the herd of pigs belonging to others that represented the livelihood of the, the herders. Why would he do that? Why would he let it happen? All I can say is sometimes God allows some puzzling things that we don't know the answer to. We could ask a lot of questions like this. Why do people get cancer and die? Why do natural disasters happen and hundreds and thousands of people die? Why is there injustice in the world? We can ask this question. See, the answer is part of larger questions like why are humans possessed at times and diseased why do we suffer the answer isn't given here but it can only be answered in a larger context of who God is and what he does and why he does what he does but the context does give us a few hints we can see a few hints in the context here of why Jesus would allow this to happen First and foremost is that Jesus is the master over nature. We saw that in the immediate context in the calming of the storm. Verses 23 to 27. He's the master of nature. And he is also, and we see in this passage today, its ultimate owner. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the two thousand pigs that were grazing some distance away. He is the master over nature and its ultimate owner. And verse 29 tells us there is an appointed time for the complete destruction of demons' power that has not yet arrived at that point in time that would allow some leeway for those that were running amok on earth, doing evil. Verse 33, the stampede proves that the men had been freed. Some have tried to explain this away and say, well, they startled the pigs. 
they were some distance away, minding their own business. And the stampede proves that the men had been freed. Whatever the case, God always has a good purpose in what he allows. Probably the biggest answer lies in the response of the people. The loss of the herd became a way of exposing the people's real values. They preferred pigs to people. Swine to a savior. Verse 33, the people tell on Jesus. The herders go and tell. In one of the gospels, it says that they went and told what happened to the pigs. Oh, and also what happened to the men. Verse 34, we see people rejecting Jesus. They basically ask him, would you, would you mind leaving town? It's like in old westerns, you know, when the gunslinger comes to town and the, the sheriff says, we don't want no, no trouble in these parts. We need you to leave town. They want Jesus gone. It shows that Jesus' ministry was not limited to Gentiles, excuse me, to Jews only. He was in Gentile territory, pagan territory. It also shows us that not only Jews rejected Jesus. People's response to Jesus matters. It matters how we respond to Jesus Christ. Let me give you some implications and and applications today. I'll point out five of them. They're started off there in your notes. The first is this. God's word is powerful all by itself. Verse 32, Jesus' one word was sufficient. By the way, this this passage shows us something. It shows us that demon possession is real. It's a serious thing. I want to remind you that demons cannot possess Christians, but they can harass Christians. We are instructed in Scripture to not give the devil a foothold, to not open up our lives to to, to evil activity. But we should never underestimate the sheer, pure, powerful effects of the Word of God. One word, one word, go. And this legion was gone. 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is God-breathed, that is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and Training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus said that thy word is truth, John 17, 17. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. God says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bear forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It shall accomplish what I purpose. It shall succeed in the reason for which I sent it. 
I heard a story once of a man who was going to end his life. He had it all planned out. He knew what he was going to do, and he knew when. And he was walking down an alleyway. And a doorway off that alleyway, there was a group of Christians meeting, and they were having a public reading of Scripture. Someone was reading the Word of God, and my memory serves me right. It was John chapter 3. And this man who, had, who was resolute in his decision of what he was going to do next was stopped in his tracks and by simply hearing the word of God was saved. God, the Holy Spirit, used his powerful word to change this man. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says that when you first heard the message, Paul says, you, you did not, he says, I was, I'm thankful for you because you did not receive it as the word of man. But for what it really is, the word of God, which does its work in you who believe. The word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, is quick and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. Nice song. The word of God is like music to our ears. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That word power in Greek is dunamis. It means where we get our English word dynamite. The gospel is powerful. The word of God is powerful. And when we share the word of God, it's not because of our ingenuity, not because of our creativity, not because of our skill. Because the, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in people's lives. As Savior, Jesus will save according to His Word. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. There's no other gospel that stands except the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Where God sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. To be a substitutionary sacrifice and put himself in the place of sinful humans. And die on a cross and be buried and raised from the dead. And all who have faith in him, all who believe, are saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31 As Savior, he will save according to his word. And, and in no other way. As judge, God is going to judge according to his word. And just like when you're driving down the road and, and you get caught for speeding and you say, oh, well, officer, I didn't see the sign. You don't get let off the hook most of the time, right? You're, you're still accountable even if you're ignorant of the law. I came to know Jesus in 1982. I got my first Bible years earlier. But over the years, I've had seven or eight Bibles. I've got them all at home, and I stacked them up recently. And I thought to myself, my entire life is bound up in this book. I need to know this book. When Jesus' disciples seemed to be in, being influenced by those who were leaving, Jesus said, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? 
And his disciples said, where are we going to go? You have words of life. Nowhere else to go. To the living word of God who fully supports the written word of God. As sovereign king of the universe, he rules over all according to his word. He always acts consistently with his word. He is faithful to his word. Martin Luther's mighty song, A Mighty Fortress, was based upon Psalm 46. He and his good friend Philip Melanchthon would sing the 46th together. And here's how it goes near the end. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And then this line, one little word shall fell him. Go. Christian, do not live in fear of evil. Greater is you, 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 Peter 5 tells us, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that the devil prowls around, who's our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. John chapter 8, Jesus said, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Every time he speaks, he lies. But God never lies. His word is true. With a word, he casts out demons. Second thing, there is always hope. There is always hope. Two demon-possessed men driven to the edge of town, marginalized, ostracized, forsaken, hopeless, right? Wrong. Pagan territory. People needed help badly. I love Matthew chapter 8. There is this missionary emphasis in Matthew chapter 8. Dealing with cultural outsiders of all sorts. Lepers, Gentiles, in those days, women, weak disciples, and now demon-possessed men, pagans. The Gadarene, formerly demon-possessed men, turned Jesus freaks. See, Jesus says, go to the demons. And as the other gospel writers point out, that he points the demons in the direction of hell and the two men in the direction of a ministry of reconciliation. Go and tell your people what great things God has done for you. Leading others, pointing others, aiming others to Jesus. So we too are to go to the ends of the earth and to tell people what great things God has done for us. And we do so as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us to the praise of His glorious grace. 
That we exist to enhance the glory of God. That He is using everything, including sin, to ultimately praise Him. Third thing. Jesus can save from anything. Let me say that again. Jesus can save from anything. He is sovereign Lord and Savior. If you want what He wants more than what your sin demands, because sin is an enslaving tyrant, then you will know the freedom of the children of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Everywhere you look, there are people in need. It might be you, it might be people you know, but there are real people with real needs that only Jesus can meet. People with addictions, people with compulsions, people with obsessions, people trapped by evil. Notice that Jesus lived what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. He did not return evil for evil to these demons. Questions as confused as the demoniacs cannot be answered. Remember that when you deal with difficult people this week. Remember that when you deal with irrational people this week. There's a person down there somewhere in the midst of the chaos. Jesus can cure anything. The real people, enslaved by sin and humanity's enemy calls for compassionate love. And we don't know how God works, do we? God's ways are as unfathomable to us as the ocean is. You go down to the beach, you can put your feet in the water, you can can go home and say you went to the beach. But don't tell anybody you understand the ocean. You can even go out scuba diving. You can even go on a cruise for 25 days. But don't tell anybody you understand the ocean. It's far bigger and far deeper and far more powerful than we understand, right? How much more so God, who made the ocean? Romans chapter 8. Excuse me, Romans chapter 11. I love Romans 8. He works all things together for good to those who love him, but called according to his purpose. Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depth, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God can save from anything. Four. Number four. Our acceptance with God necessitates adjustment on our part. Our approach to Jesus demands adjustment on our part. Humility versus pride. See, the thing that God does, the first adjustment is for us. Because remember, we were dead in sin, unable to move, to do anything, and He made those who are Christians alive in Christ, those of us who were dead. And how dead is dead? Dead, dead. And he moved in our hearts to want to want him. Christ's authority over the chaos in mankind brings freedom, it brings healing, but it also brings the need for adjustment on our part to align ourselves with him. Our response enabled and sustained by his grace, that of yielding to God, that of of accepting his rule, that of bowing before him. 
on a daily basis? You see, Jesus knows what he is doing, and he knows what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. And it might happen on your block. It might happen in your house. It might happen in your workplace, in your school, that you may not be ready for it. Are you ready for God to do a miracle that makes you adjust? Nowhere in the Bible are we promised an easy life. We hear that and we go, yeah, I know, but God really won't allow anything that really hurts in my life, right? Sometimes your greatest blessing comes through your greatest loss, and the thing you least want may just be the thing that God wants to use as the doorway to the greatest blessing that you could ever imagine. And one last thing. It's really attached to this, this number four. Number five is attached to number four. It's a question. It's probably the biggest question mark for all of us today in light of this passage of Scripture. Are we willing to be inconvenienced and even suffer loss for the sake of the gospel? What if following Jesus meant loss rather than gain here on earth? Would our property values be more precious to us than people's souls set free by Jesus? Would we be more in love with our loose change than life change? Are our pigs more important to us than people in their right mind? Are swine more treasured to us than a Savior whose blood was spilled for the life of the world? Now you say, well, I'm not a pig farmer. I'm not a pig rancher, so I'm off the hook. By the way, I will say that um, I know we don't have any pig farmers here. I, I know first hour we had a former pig farmer. I do have relatives in Nebraska who are hog farmers. But put something else in your situation. Put something else in place of the swine in that last sentence. And you're going to get the point. The line between being a good steward and worshiping God's gifts is a fine one. The gospel exposes idolatry and secret rebellion against God. What did Paul say? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Following Jesus will give anyone who was dead new life and will cost your life. Now, the herders were not even willing to be cost their livelihood. They were not willing to bear that cost. I wrote a poem this week. I think I wrote it yesterday. I can't remember. The days blend. I'm going to read it for you. It's called Set Free and Enslaved. The men that day did not bow down. They thrashed and gnashed outside of town. Their names we know not, but we do that of their torturers, many. Fierce they stood to block all men from passing by their haunted den. They screamed at Jesus standing there. No love was lost in their disdain. Wrong-minded, blinded in the fray. How dare he come here now today, they cried, shuddering, chilled by hate. Fear and anger 
blending sadly. The demons begged. The herd was drowned. The herders ran to tell the town a league of innocent swine hated as the son's handiwork. The son who freed the men that day was not welcomed, sent away. They loved creation more, so he left them to their own devices. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for how good you are. We thank you, Lord, that life-changing love towards people with serious needs is substitutional sacrifice. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your substitutional sacrifice. Lord, make those of us who know you and love you willing, like Paul, to, be spend, to, be, to spend and be spent for the souls of others. Lord, help us to track close to the heart of the gospel, that, that, that idea of Christ's life for ours because of his love. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation and our freedom cost Jesus his life. And we know, Lord, that we should pattern our lives and our ministry after Jesus. And we know, Lord, that following may cost us comfort, reputation, livelihood. But we know, Lord, that it will be glorious because you do what you do for your glory. And so we pray to you alone be glory through Jesus Christ.